Well, you know that six feet of social distancing and you get in a line at the store and there I was and it was finally my turn. And as I started to walk forward, the cashier went like this and said, do you mind waiting? I said, no, it's okay. And he took off. Five minutes later, he hadn't come back yet. And I began to wonder if this was some sort of social experiment. And then I realized I lied. Yeah, I did mind waiting. So what's the longest you've ever waited in a restaurant for a waiter to show up to take your order or to bring your food? What is the longest that you've ever been on hold? There are things you don't mind waiting for, like your credit card bill to arrive, or a dentist appointment when you know you got a cavity, or renewing your driver's license because you know it's going to take forever to get an appointment and even then you're going to have to stand in a really long line. There are other things that you don't want to wait for. In other words, they can't come soon enough, like Chick-fil-A to finally open in Honolulu, or the next season of the Great British Baking Show not having to wear masks or be afraid of other people, especially if they cough or sneeze. Waiting can bring out our insecurities. It gives times for the seed of doubt to begin to, well, blossom. And it, we start making things up. Or we see waiting is a waste of time. We don't need to wait. We're ready right now. And so waiting just makes us agitated. Our gospel last, last week ended with Jesus telling the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Luke noted after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple complex praising God. Now that's active waiting. Not sitting around twiddling your thumbs, staring at the ce uh, ceiling kind of waiting. But rather, it, they said until the Spirit came, they would worship Jesus. And they would tell anyone who would listen the stories of his miracles and his love. So have you ever gone to a new church, went for the very first time, you're sitting there, everything's kind of going along well, and then you realize it's time for communion and you're gonna be very first in line because we all know that real Lutherans sit in the back. And so guests don't get there soon enough and they wind up sitting up front. And so it's time and the usher comes and he's pointing you up to the altar and you have no idea what you're supposed to do. How about one of those intersections under construction with a hundred signs all pointing different directions and you got to figure out what lane you're supposed to drive in? Or how about uh, maybe you've uh, pushed the wrong language on the ATM machine and suddenly there's Hawaiian or Japanese or one of the other languages and you're hoping you remember which button so that you don't wind up transferring all of your money from checking into savings. The disciples had all been baptized by water and the lines at the Jordan were so long because it says that everybody came out that by the time it was their turn, they knew exactly what to do. But there were two things Jesus said that were a little scary. First, go and make disciples of all nations. And second, you're now going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Which do you think was scarier? Being told to leave your home, tell the whole world about Jesus or that you were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been at Workday, you know that I'm not a big fan of instruction manuals. So when we have something new, first I try to find somebody who's already done it. I go, great, your job, go for it. If that fails, well, I try it myself, and I never look at the instructions. 
And third, finally, and only as a last resort, do I dig the instructions out of the trash can, brush all the junk off, and then see how they say that we should do it. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit is both the gift and the instruction manual. The Holy Spirit installs in us a GPS to get us home to heaven, a self-updating theological guidebook to consult while we're headed home, and a motivational encourager to help us stay the course and not give up even when it gets really dark and we're feeling pretty lost. But all of this assumes that we're willing to listen. We'll get to that in a moment. After the ascension, Luke said if the disciples weren't at the temple, that they were gathering back at the upper room. The same upper room they ate the Passover meal with Jesus with before the crucifixion. The same place they hid from the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers after the crucifixion. And the same place that Jesus walked right through the walls and stood there right in front of them and gave them his peace twice before telling them he was going to send them out to tell the world about hope and heaven and love. So where do you go when you need to think something through, when you need to focus on what's next? I mean, some people just put on their headphones or their earbuds. Some turn off their cell phone. Some head to the beach or out onto the waves. And I'll be honest, there's quite a few people who just go to sleep. How do you process something that is both scary and exciting? If you had a child baptized, or if you were baptized late enough in life that you actually remember what happened, what did you expect to happen when the water flowed across the forehead. I mean, I have to admit, if every child that we baptized instantly became bi or multilingual, as happens today in our lesson from the book of Acts, I think we could have people lined up out the door every single Sunday. Now, they might be a little intimidated with the whole tongues of fire thing, but they'd be right there with their phones to video it so they could upload it to social media. But just think, if parents could say, you know what, I got my kid baptized in our Savior, and now he speaks and then list the number of languages. True story. A few years back, someone called and asked if we did baptisms. I said, yes. Um, they uh, said, you know, I'm not really churched. I said, that's okay. We're excited to work with families to teach them about baptism. They came in. They met with us. We set up a date. She admitted the primary reason for the baptism was so that the mother-in-law would leave her alone. We set the date. As I said, we uh, got there. Everything went well kid behaved absolutely marvelously, even though he'd never been to church before. And the parents were okay too. A week later, the mom called and asked if there was something else that needed to be done. I said, no, no, everything's done. Why do you ask? And she said, well, she's still crying. How long is it going to take? I didn't know how to respond. I mean, if I could guarantee that your child would become perfect, never cry, never do anything crazy just by baptism, we wouldn't just have them lined up out the door. We'd have them lined up all the way down to Aloha Stadium. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I didn't feel any different after Pastor Sam poured the water over me and I was 13 years old. I just felt wetter. There are denominations who teach that water baptism doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. They say the Holy Spirit requires something special, a limited addition baptism. And yet in our gospel lesson two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit was given to Gentiles who hadn't even been baptized yet. And Peter asked everyone, can anybody give me a reason why we shouldn't baptize him? I mean, they've already got the Holy Spirit. And evidently nobody could think of a reason because he went ahead and baptized him. Now, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 12, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. 
This verse has caused quite a few theologians to pull their hair out. Jesus tied these greater things to the Holy Spirit. And Luther said, greater things do not mean things that are greater than raising people from the dead or casting out demons or walking on water. Because let's face it, what could, be, what could possibly be greater than those? But two things stood out to Luther. When God does a miracle, it's ordinary. I mean, God is God. So when he does something that's a miracle, we just go, yeah, he's God. But when you and I do a miracle, that's something greater because we're not God. Second, Jesus specifically limited his ministry to Israel. He did cross the border into Samaria a couple of times. His disciples would reach the ends of the earth, and thus their ministry would be greater in size. And when we consider this international ministry would be run by a bunch of fishermen, a former prostitute, a tax collector, physician, and um, a whole bunch of others without all modern technology that we have, we begin to see the need for the power of the Holy Spirit and why Jesus said it would be greater. Whatever the disciples expected, I doubt it was the sound of rushing wind, tongues of fire, speaking in other languages, and an overwhelming boldness. The wind was so loud, the tongues of fire so bright, people who had come from all over the empire to celebrate the harvest festival there in Jerusalem, they came running to find out what was going on. They didn't need an interpreter. The disciples spoke to them in their own language, which amazed and perplexed everyone, including the disciples. So have you ever missed a moment you wanted to tell somebody something that was really important, something you really needed to tell them, but you just kept waiting for the perfect opportunity. And you waited so long that you ran out of opportunities. In fact, you ran out of time. One day I'm gonna tell her I love her. One day I'm gonna tell him what I'm really thinking. One day I'm gonna make sure that they know just how important they are to me. And then there are no more days. And whatever was so important remains unspoken. So quick summary of last week's sermon. First, if the world is going to know about God and heaven and forgiveness and hope, well, it's up to us. Jesus said it's our job. When Jesus headed back to heaven, he tossed us the keys to the kingdom and he said, all right, get to work. But he said, wait until my father gives you a special gift. Second, to do that, we needed help. And that's when he said, wait in Jerusalem, or in our case, Iaea, Honolulu, Waipahu, Eva Beach, Houston, Utah, Colorado. Well, you get the point. He says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then, then you'll be ready to go out and tell the world. The same Peter who started to sink when he lost sight of Jesus when he was out on the water, the same Peter who denied Jesus three different times at the crucifixion, the same Peter who Jesus had said, get behind me, Satan, to. He stands up, raises his voice, and he begins to quote the prophet Joel. In the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's people, men and women, old and young, slave and free, and that Spirit will empower and equip all of God's people to become priests. No matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what language they speak, or what their life circumstances were or are, and from everything we know, when Peter was preaching, he didn't need that universal translator from Star Trek because the Spirit spoke, spoke straight to the hearts of everybody who was gathered there. I'm surprised most mainline denominations and synods celebrate Pentecost because the thought of men and women, old and young, coming of, from every kind of life and culture and background, suddenly being able to preach and teach and love and forgive, I'll be honest, that should scare them. God is so much easier to control and keep an eye on when only the professionals are allowed to do such things. And yet, if we really are going to change the world, 
if we're really going to make disciples of all nations, if we're really going to tell them about heaven and hope and love and forgiveness, there aren't enough professionals. Which is why God sent the Holy Spirit to everyone who believes. And he said, tag, you're it. And all of us head out into our own part of the world, wherever it is that God has put us, wherever it is God is leading us. You see, the other thing last week's sermon was about was whether the church is an institution or a movement. Because if it's an institution, then it is the most gigantic failure of all time. But if it's a movement, there is hope. In one of his first sermons, Jesus read from the prophet Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, looked out to everybody who was gathered and said, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The crowd got upset and basically asked, Who does he think he is? It's a very good question, except he really does know who he is. And he wants us to know who he is, which is the whole purpose of his coming into the world. That crowd, by the way, would really not have been happy three years later when he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Because then they would have asked, well, who does he think we are? You see, both questions come back to the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. You've heard me say that you are a unique and unreproducible miracle of God. I've said it at least a thousand times. The reason you aren't fully living like the unique miracle that you are is because you're not sure it's totally true. You'd like to believe it, but you know a whole bunch of reasons that it's not. Enter the Holy Spirit, whose first and most important primary job is to help you figure out who Jesus is so that you can then find out who you are, so that you can begin to see where you fit into God's grand plan of heaven and hope and forever. You see, those words from Isaiah that talked about preaching good news to the poor, freeing captives, setting the oppressed free, helping the blind see, the deaf hear, the lost get found. Isn't that something you could get into? I mean, isn't that something that you would love to be part of? Something that would be worth your time? So why aren't you out there doing it? I know Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, Iaea, Chicago, Houston, San Francisco, Utah, Seattle, or Connecticut until the Holy Spirit shows up then get out there and make a difference. Now for the disciples, there was no doubt the Holy Spirit had shown up, all that wind and tongues of fire and speaking in other languages. Most of us didn't experience anything like that at our baptism. We just got a wet forehead. And maybe that's why we've been waiting in IAEA, Chicago, Houston, San Francisco, Connecticut, Utah, and Seattle. We're not totally sure that the Holy Spirit has shown up yet. And God did say, don't leave until he does. So that's probably our excuse, and we're hoping it's good enough. What would convince us the Holy Spirit had come? Shouldn't it be enough that all those things Isaiah talked about actually and really need to be done? There are so many lost and hurting and upside-down people in this world, and I know we can't take care of all of them, but maybe we could take care of a few of them. And I'll ask the big question, is there anybody more qualified than us? What are we missing? And if we're missing something, is it because we don't have it or because we haven't looked around or partnered with somebody who we know does? On Easter, we discovered Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God. If Jesus is who he said he is, and he said that we are unique and unreproducible miracles, capable of preaching good news, freeing captives, helping the blind see, the deaf hear, the lost get found, what's it going to take for us to believe him 
as he talks about us? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until the disciples were willing to surrender their own version and idea of the kingdom of God and embrace God's version and idea of the kingdom of God that anything really began to happen. And the same goes for us. And this isn't about us loving God more. That just has us chasing our tail because we're never going to get there. This is and always has been about realizing how much God loves us. This is how St. Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who among us knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. So may our prayers always be that God would draw us closer to Him, that He would embolden us, that He would show us who He is, and that in all of that showing, in all of that that He does, we would begin to be bold enough to step out in, in faith, in grace, in mercy, in love, and do all those things that the prophet Isaiah said that needed to be done, and which we know need to be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.